Hi, I'm Hassan Andes, a certified dog behavior consultant, business coach, and founder of Pet Karma Dog Training. As a dog behavior professional of 12 years, I specialize in all things dog behavior, online dog sports, and puppy socialization. I started my first business, Pet Karma Dog Training, 12 years ago, and my mission has always been to strengthen the communication between dogs and their people. I help thousands of clients, dogs, and pet professionals all over the globe solve their problems and create pathways for better communication between humans and their best friends. If you would like to learn more about dog behavior, puppy husbandry, and the soul relationship between you and your dogs, you've come to the right place. Get ready to start your journey and dive deep into the rich etiology and daily ins and outs of the human-dog relationship. Welcome to the Canine Behavior Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to episode three of the Canine Behavior Podcast. Today, I am so super excited to have my mentor on the show. Her name is Laura Monaco Torelli. And she is a world-renowned animal trainer. She's been working uh, for the past several decades with animals and wildlife. And she brings to us a diverse amount of knowledge. And I'm just so excited to have you on the show, Laura. Thank you for being on. Oh, thank you so much for this generous invitation. And we have more time together just on your platform. So lucky me. So let's dive right in. I'm just so curious to know your story and your experiences that you've had working with wildlife at the aquarium. So I don't know where to start. Well, if folks have heard me on other podcasts and a bit of my journey into the animal care and training community, what some folks might not know is I didn't start right away at Shedd Aquarium as a marine mammal trainer um, with Ken Ramirez and Lisa Takaki as my first mentors, um, which I feel so grateful for. That was back in 1991. But prior to that, my first real exposure to the animal care community was through conservation biology with uh, Dr. Randy Wells and the Sarasota Dolphin Research Program. Um, and Dr. Wells is a, is a conservation biologist employed through Brookfield Zoo, but his base is in Moat Marine Lab in Sarasota, Florida. So back in the summer of 1991, when I was a young pup, um, still in college, my first amazing experience was volunteering for two weeks on Dr. Wells' website and being out in the open water um, every day for, you know, two weeks, helping wildlife biologists, graduate students, PhD candidates, postdocs working on their research in the field. And my job was to do whatever they needed help with, whether it was recording data, you know, loading up and unloading the boats, making sure they had all the gear that they needed. My happy memories of a launching point when it came to the animal care community, it was working with wildlife researchers and conservation biology and just sponging it all in and just learning so much from each of the different scientists with their areas of focus and interest in research, whether it was, you know, studying respiratory rates of the wild dolphin population, which bottlenose dolphins, um, Terceps truncatus, for that particular um, species, um, Atlantic bottlenose dolphins. And 
uh, Dr. Wells and his team had been studying this population for decades prior to, to that summer that I had helped out. It was so amazing that I went down many times after, at least 15 times after that, you know, over the next couple decades, you know, just to keep volunteering whatever they needed help with. I would scrub a boat if they needed it. That's incredible that your first experience working uh, with wildlife was with dolphins. Did you get to work closely with them? Well, they were, they were free ranging. They were, they were out living in the wild. And so the, um, the amazing program, which um, I, I highly suggest that any of your listeners visit Sarasota Dolphin uh, Research Program um, through Mont Marine Lab. You can also learn more about it through Brookfield Zoo's website and Dr. Randy Wells. It's, it's an amazing program. It was the, collaboration that all of the various researchers and students were involved in veterinarians that were part of the process as well helping to do health assessments with the wild dolphins and assessing you know human impact on the water quality and on their on their you know food and all the different types of um, toxin levels that you know the dolphins are and other wildlife are enduring in the wild and it was through Dr. Dave Casper, who was also there for that two-week research project in June of 1991, who was a who was the marine mammal veterinarian at Shedd Aquarium at the time. 1991 was when the Oceanarium first opened at the Shedd Aquarium, so it was a brand new addition. So when I was down there, college and just so passionate about, you know, I just want to work near animals. I just want to be near incredible mentors. I just want this opportunity to be exposed to what this looks like um, within conservation biology. And then I met Dr. Casper on the project and he had said, well, you know, we have a great new marine mammal program at Shedd Aquarium, you're from Chicago. And I just happened to have an interview set up in the volunteer program when I got back from this trip. And I said, well, I'm interviewing in, at, at the Shedd Aquarium's um, volunteer program just to get my foot in the door at Shedd Aquarium, whatever they offer me, you know, I'll be, I'll be thrilled to volunteer in any program that they have availability. And it, that it was like two years prior to that of just interviewing and just trying to get my foot in the door and hearing, well, we can't hire you because you don't have enough experience, but you don't have enough experience. So we can't hire you. And that, you know, kind of double-edged sword while I was still in college and, um, I was working part-time at the Brookfield Zoo Bookstore. I was working um, overnight at a vet clinic. Like I was doing anything and everything I could to get as much animal care experience possible. And, you know, it just kind of felt like I'm never going to get this break. It's never going to happen. And even now, I remember back then, which is now, you know, 30, 32 years now, um, I am grateful to this day to the folks that took me under their wing, you know, gave me the chance, were amazing mentors, challenged me to continue to work really hard and surround myself with individuals that wanted to support learning 
And I always felt safe to ask questions. You know, I remember back then I was just so full of questions and I would ask them at appropriate times. And even if some of the scientists were talking way above my knowledge base, I just enjoyed being around it and sponging in all the information, even the conversations that they would have with each other on the boats. I would just kind of sit quietly off on the side of the boat and I'd be listening to them talk about like bioacoustics and they'd be talking about toxicology and they'd be talking about, you know, doing, um, you know, surveys of um, sea turtles and sharks and all the relevance of all of these beautiful animals living in the wild and how they all depend on each other and support each other. It's still mind-blowing clearly because it's still so vivid to me. Wow. There's so much to unpack there. And one of the things that really, <laughs> one of the things that really stood out to me is your early work with the researchers, the doctors and the veterinarians and all the students that really stood out to me because one of the main things that from working with you and being mentored by you that I grew as a, a dog trainer and a consultant is the ability to work as a team with other experts like veterinarians and uh, other trainers, as well as, you know, the, the pet guardians. And so that assembling of the team and how to work cooperatively as a team is something that I learned from you. So I'm so grateful for those lessons because that takeaway, because honestly, before I met you, it wasn't like it is now. Now I'm really pursuing that team and cooperative uh, work with veterinarians in my area. So I'm really, really grateful for that. And it was almost like before I was shy or nervous about asking for more help or assistance from veterinarians just because they're so stressed and always like overworked and there seems to be like a, a time crunch. So sometimes it was hard for me to have that courage to ask them for more support. But after working with you now, I'm more confident in approaching them even for that support. So that stood out to me. And also that you bring up how you were thankful for the people who, the community of people who fostered and nurtured your desire to learn. And every, I mean, that's amazing that you bring that to light. That says a lot about who you are as a person. Can you take us back to like earlier, even earlier, like in your childhood, like what made you, did you know you were always passionate about wildlife and working with animals? Yeah. And you know, just a side note, because I want to bookmark this, that we talk about Dr. Jeff Bohm and my first experience with him when I was a marine mammal trainer at Shed and how that set a certain ball in motion. Some that might listen to this, that have listened to me talk in, in other podcasts, they're like, oh, I remember the Dr. Bohm story, but it, it holds so much it anchors so much value to me that I always want to give you know a proper shout out to as many of my mentors as I can. So the other week I got together. I have an older brother and an older sister, and I got I was uh, I had to get together with my brother, and you know something totally not animal related, but we were hanging out, and I remember Mike had said to me, you know, from my earliest memory, you have always been orientated towards animals ever since you were a little girl. You know if if we were at a family party or we were like, you know, playing outside, if there was like a dog or a cat, or he's like, even the squirrels, like you were just magnetized and not like in a way where I was being intrusive to them, but I would just watch the squirrels and trees or, you know, I would, I would want to talk with my neighbor about their dogs. And I'm like, Oh, that's so neat that you remember that. He's like, Oh yeah. You know, 
it's like, oh, you know, well, where's Laura now? And you would just be like, like looking up in the trees and just doing other things. My earliest memories are from um, my grandma Maggie, bless her heart, I miss her every day. And my grandma Maggie, back in the 1970s, she helped with a wildlife rescue and she would help um, rehab orphaned raccoons. And so we, there's photos of her with these, you know, small raccoons that she would help to a certain point. And then the wildlife rescue would take them back and then, you know, release them in the wild. Um, you know, again, this is back in the 1970s. So I don't have much memory. I was very, very little then. So, you know, I don't know about permitting and, you know, all the things that that my grandma Maggie must have gone through. But there are photos um, and they had this outdoor closure that was like, you know, back then it was like, this is really impressive. You know, we would look at the little raccoons and who knew years later, I'd be working with raccoons that were injured in the wild and deemed non-releasable. And then like it, uh, when, when I worked at Brookfield Zoo um, as, as a supervisory keeper trainer, and we had rehab raccoons there. And I'm like, <laughs> who knew, you know, decades later, that's something that was such a positive impact for me, watching my grandma Maggie work on saving um, or helping to support wildlife rescue would just continually set the tone. I, you know, ironically, we couldn't have any cats or dogs in our home when we were younger because my brother has horrible allergies to animals. And so, you know, he would just have, have a hard time breathing. He had, you know, asthma. And so... I never had like our own cat or dog in our home growing up um, until I was in my late teens. And then, you know, I had my first bunny and then, you know, that led to a second bunny. And then in the mid nineties, I rescued like a seven or eight year old calico kitty that was dropped off at a vet clinic and never picked up. <laughs> Those are my earliest memories. That's amazing. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing about your uh, grandmother, Maggie. Oh, Grandma Maggie, miss her every day. Grandmas have such a huge impact in children's lives. And I still remember also so many fond memories of my grandmother. So it's very heartwarming to hear that for that story from you. What did you call your grandma? Grandma who? What was her name? Oh, Harmony, which means grandma in Korean. Say, say again. Harmony. Beautiful. And it means grandma in Korean, and she was the best cook ever. And she would home cook everything, and she had such a big impact in my life. Oh, I loved hearing about your grandmother. My memories growing up, I am a Gen X growing up pre-social media, pre-cell phones, pre-cable, you know, like, you know, back back in the 70s, you know, little little one. I just remember never wanting to be inside. And I live in Chicago. And when, when we would have like a brutal Chicago winter, we were still outside playing games, you know, it, dusk would hit, our mom would be calling out the front door, Mike, Donna, Laurel, it's time to come inside. And I have memories as early as I can remember, just, you know, well, we lived near a forest preserve, which, you know, we felt safe to walk through. There was a path, you know, a really well paved path but I, I like even now I have such vivid memories of just walking around the neighborhood watching birds watching the squirrels not feeding them you know not 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 changing their um their day-to-day -day interaction with their natural environment but there was just something about being outdoors and watching wildlife that for me 
was, I, I guess, my hobby. You know, I, I didn't, I wasn't like swimming all the time or, you know, roller skating or stuff like that. I just would wander, um, you know, safely. We had babysitters or, you know, if, if our parents weren't, or if my brother and sister weren't watching me. And still to this day, there's just this draw that I have to being outside, to being around nature, to being around animals and just observing. And to have that early experience of watching how conservation biologists and research teams were this well-oiled machine of observing a population of wild bottlenose dolphins, you know, off the waters within, within the bay. I'm also Gen X. I know that's some people, a lot of people don't know that, but I'm also Gen X and my parents knew that the worst punishment for me was if they said, you can't go outside. Oh, yes. Yeah, that was the yes. worst. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. yes. I'm so glad that you get that. It's like, what do you mean I can't go outside? It's like yeah. you, you sit in your room, read a book or, you know, which, which, I mean, I loved reading books, you know, I would get lost in books, but do you remember back then? that National Geographic would release those slides that you would put in those little projectors in the library and you could insert a slide and then watch the next one. Do you remember those? Yeah, yeah. I have memories of watching shark slides and I was obsessed with sharks, obsessed. In fact, I thought I was going to work with sharks. I thought I was going to study sharks in the wild before... I got an interest in pinnipeds, which are seals, sea lions, and walrus, and then cetaceans, which are whales, dolphins, and porpoises, sharks. And I would sit in the library and I would grab any National Geographic magazine. And I remember our mom, um, which I'm going to have to call her after this and say, thank you again, because she, she would buy us the National Geographic magazine back in the 70s. And I would just remember being fascinated, like, look yeah. at what these people get to do. Look at how they're interfacing and interacting with and learning from wildlife. And then, yeah, Ooh, I'm just passion talking now. I it's know, so same, same. I'm so on your wavelength with that. Like, um, for your mom to say that to you, you can't go outside. And it was like, dun, dun, dun. For how long? How oh, long yeah, that was the worst. And also the National Geographic, that's all I watched. Like, other kids were watching cartoons. I was watching National Geographic. <laughs> Yes. So it makes so much sense to me. Um, when you were at Shed, can you take us back? Like, what were the most, you know, impactful experiences that you had there? And which animals did you really, really enjoy working with there? Oh, really good questions. So to go with the first one, when I think back to Ryan Cartledge, who has the, um, the, the ATA, the Animal Training Academy, we all follow each other on his, um, on this private Facebook page. I had done a pod, I had done a podcast series and then he titled it the making of a memorable mentor. Cause we were talking about the impact of mentors in our lives growing up. Our parents would say it was typically on a Sunday. What do you kids want to do today? And I grew up in a suburb of Chicago called LaGrange park. So it's not that far from downtown Chicago, but it's a, maybe a 10 minute drive from Brookfield Zoo. So if anyone knows the area, my brother would want to do this and my sister would want to do that. And then I would want to do this. And so I would usually say shed aquarium, field museum, science and industry, um, Brookfield Zoo, Lincoln Park Zoo, and it was on rotation. So um, I posted a picture a couple of weeks ago of my husband and I saying goodbye to the Caribbean Reef at Shed Aquarium. 
which was this beautiful centerpiece. When you would come and walk in the entrance of Shed, the Caribbean Reef is this beautiful center habitat that has been there since the early 70s. So growing up, when we would go to Shed Aquarium, my nose would be up against the Caribbean Reef plexiglass, you know, and just looking at all of the different saltwater species that they had in there, the eel, the moray eel, that then they had nurse sharks, they had different species of rays. Well, the Shed Aquarium just closed it officially, like it is now dismantled. They're now doing a new habitat there. And, I, and then fast forward to 1991, when I interviewed, so I went down to Florida, came back, and I did my interview in the volunteer department, and they said, we have an opening in the lab, education, and a marine mammal shift. So I keep in mind, I'm, I'm in college full time, and I was like, I, I will take them all if you've got availability. So like one day I would do like four or five hours in the lab, and I'd help with water quality, with the aquarium and the oceanarium and the education department. I loved because I got to interact with the public and I would be, you know, holding up pictures of different species and it was so cool. And then of course, marine mammals and a couple of things that flag in my head before I got hired, I was at a shed aquarium, like 4th of July event, which was on their North terrace. Um, a couple came up to me and the woman had said, you know, are you Donna Monaco's sister? And I said, yeah, that's my sister. And she said, I knew your sister when she played open volleyball with these different tournament teams before she played college ball. So keep in mind, my sister is six foot tall, my brother's six three, and then there's me. I'm five five. I'm short. I got all the Italian. She's very, very short. And so that was Debbie Robinette. Her husband was the curator of marine mammals. So she introduced me to Jim and I'm like, oh, it's so nice to meet you. And I said, I just interviewed in the vol uh, in the volunteer department and I'm going to be starting um, a volunteer shift in marine mammals. I really look forward to volunteering, you know, in the marine mammal department. And it was like, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. And then I came down after one of the presentations and Ken Ramirez had narrated it. And this is back in 1991. So we were all, all, all much younger then. And I remember coming down and, you know, Ken's asking, you know, like asking, answering public questions. And, you know, he came over to me, he said, hi, you know, do you have a question for me about the animals or about this, that, or the other? And I had just blurted out. I just came back from volunteering, you know, with Dr. Randy Wells and down in Florida. And, you know, I was, oh, I know Dr. Wells, you know, he and I know each other. And so Ken went, on this ex brief explanation. And I said, well, I'm going to start volunteering in marine mammals. And I'm just, I'm just so excited to be here. And I was just like, I am now, I was just tripping over my words with excitement and I just couldn't wait. I just couldn't wait. And those were like early experiences of meeting Jim and Ken, who were my first two bosses curator and Ken was assistant curator at the time. And their immediate interaction with me was kind, inclusive, answering my questions. They were so enthusiastic watching me like this. I was just bursting out of the seams. Like, I'm finally getting a break. I'm finally getting what I've worked so hard for. Do you have any memories of that for you where you're like, I'm finally, I'm finally getting the break. Like balls are finally rolling in motion. Do you have memories of that cataloged for you? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, I do. I mean, I just love that description of you because I was going to ask you, like, how did you meet Ken? In what capacity did you meet him? And what was he like? Now that you describe it, I'm like, wow, like that really shows how kind he is and willing he was to help you and listen to you and include you in everything. So interesting. And also, you know, big shout out to Jim Robinette, who I saw the other week recently had their gala. And my husband still works at Shed. He's not a trainer. He works in facilities and life support systems. But Jim and Debbie Robinette were there. And so we were all just, it was like this reunion. And, you know, we're all looking at each other like, where have the 30 years gone? And we're catching up on their daughters. And, you know, Debbie's asking about my sister. And, you know, and like, you know, we're just catching up on this decades long friendship. And, you know, as you know, Ken is my boss again through Karen Pryor Academy. So for all your listeners out there, never burn a bridge, <laughs> never burn a bridge because you never know who, you know, if your boss, then you might be working with them again in the future. Yeah. Um, and I had, I had that same feeling when I you first started working with me because I was like, I don't know if she would ever work with me mentoring with you. That's how ecstatic I felt, too. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. That really means a lot. Thank you. Of course, of course. That, that means more than I can say. I do still have Dr. Bohm's story on deck. Early experience as a, as a marine mammal trainer. And I don't want you to rush. So like, even if we run out of time, um, we can always do a part two. If we continue to talk about, you know, animal care and husbandry and things, it, this story is going to come up pretty quick. So yeah. yeah. Definitely. Um, were there any like specific animals you worked with at Shed that were like very impactful to you that you had a special relationship with? All of them in different ways from 1991 to 2000 before I left for San Diego Zoo. There were um, Northern or Alaskan sea otters and four of the five were rescued pups from the Exxon Valdez oil spill. So any of our listeners remember that horrible event, catastrophic event. And then the fifth otter was found as an orphan, Kachmak Bay. So her name, so then she was named Kachmak. Kenai, Shinik, Nuka, and Nikishka were rescued pups from the Exxon Valdez water oil spill. So for the opportunity to be on the sea otter team, which I was part of the Seattle team, bridged more work with conservation biology and all the work that continuing to go on by following all of the pups that couldn't be released back in the wild that were then sent to different zoos and aquariums. And then their follow-up healthcare and how they were tracked was a really unique and very special opportunity. And they must be very smart, right, otters? Very smart, very fast. Alaskan sea otters are a little bit larger than the, than the southern sea otters. I think you and I might have joked in some of our Zoom calls where I'm like, okay, you know, what what would I do if this was a sea otter? Like if I'm working with, you know, one of my dogs, honoring what my dogs are, which they are dogs. But that quick thinking, because sea otters are just constantly like, what can I destroy? What can I grab? What can I do this with? What can I do that with? They, they are built to survive in really harsh environment and they're built to use their front paws to navigate dark murky waters to find food sources so their paws are very very um dexterous you know and very um, very strong uh those are really special memories an earlier memory and this is going to be my dr bohm story is when dr bohm came on then there were whiteboards everywhere and they'd say okay the vet team is going to come out, you know, we're going to do mock-up blood draws, we're going to do a mock-up exam just to prepare for this, that, and the other. 
And I remember it was it was 1993. We were in a pre-session meeting and, you know, Ken had said Dr. Bohm's going to come out with one of the vet techs and they're going to um, attempt a voluntary blood draw with Cree, who was a Pacific white-sided dolphin that I worked with, came out for the first time on a session with me. And we mock it up. We have various people, you know, pretend to be the vet tech, help be the second person. Oh, to this day, it's just chills. And I remember I offered the cue for Cree to offer her fluke or her tail. And she did. And she had it, you know, just resting on my lap. And I'm waiting for Dr. Bohm to start the blood draw. And he leans over and, you know, he, he leans over this way and he says, are you and Cree ready for us to begin? And I was what, 20, 23. I mean, I was, I was, you know, young, young trainer, young in my career. Maybe it doesn't have to be young numerically, but I was new as a, as a animal care and trainer um, provider. And I just looked up at Dr. Bohm and I, I was like this. I was like, yeah, yeah, we, yes, we are. And he was like, okay. So, and he said, so this is what I'm going to do. He's like, I'm going to start with this gauze. And, and he's talking me through it. And this was, thir- this was 30 years ago now. That is so cemented and such a memorable moment for me about what collaboration. And, you know, we always hear about this big word consent. You know, what is consent and what does it mean? And learning early in my career that consent isn't just about the animal, but it's about asking the handlers that are involved, do you feel comfortable to do this next step, you know, um, what what do you need to feel more comfortable? What other opportunities could we provide in your skill set to build your fluency to feel comfortable to do this next step with the marine mammal or the eagle or the penguin or the dog or the cat or the horse? Sounds like a dream. <laughs> you know what? Here's the thing: at the time, you're just in it. You're you know this is this is just what we do, right? When I look back on these experiences, you know, and every time I see Dr. Bohm, I'm like, he goes, you know, I'm like, you, you need to know every single time that, that, that I see you, how grateful I am. He is now at the Marine Mammal Center in Sausalito, where they work with wildlife rescue with pinnipeds. So they do a lot of wildlife rescue with seals, well, mainly sea lions, just to know the continued great work that he's putting out there is, is fantastic. It was such an early mark of everyone that's involved feeling comfortable with what's being asked of us, but also working on our skill set of being able to make these quick decisions within seconds about, you know, we're just going to call it or, you know, let's, let's do this. Let's see what the animal offers here. Let's see. And just making these, these quick decisions and then collaborating like that on on different levels of colleagues, veterinarians, the animals, it's, you know, any, any handler, whether it's a dog living in a home, you know, with a family or a cat. Much for sharing that memory. It has such a deep impact, like your early experiences with collaboration is making a big impact now with me and so many countless other people working directly with pet guardians and 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 uh, domestic animals to work more collaboratively in the community. Uh, for some reason, I think our culture has always been like this, but even more like this in the past decade is everyone is just very compartmentalized and independent of one another. And that's kind of the 
the push culturally in society. So you coming to us and teaching us about how to truly collaborate, honestly, it's, I can't even, I don't have the words to tell you how thankful I am because that makes such a big difference. Thank you for saying that. That is so kind of you. And I would like to say I'm still learning every day how to be better at it through my mentors, through my colleagues like you, through our Zoom calls and through your video submissions. You know, I'm learning more from every question you ask, every question I get from anyone, you know, that I have the joy to have a conversation with. It's an ongoing opportunity to learn. And that's something that I'm grateful for. And you know, when my glasses come off, like I'm getting real deep in thought, but you know, social media and the platform on social media and posting training videos or animal care videos on social media has so many benefits that we can lean into. But there's also considerations to keep in mind that in this short 15 second, 30 second, you know, one minute, 90 second blip, that video doesn't give the full scope of the amount of work that might have gone in to achieve what's being showcased and whether whomever, myself included, decides to post that video, putting within the text content. This team has done a lot of hard work in collaboration with the vet and, you know, ruling out medical issues. I think an area where at times where I kind of pull back from social media a bit, you know, I'll kind of be a bit more quiet and not post as much is for some of us within our community. You know, we we all advocate positive reinforcement care and training. Or if we have a colleague or a friend or a client post a video that they're so proud of, like we have worked X amount of time to achieve this. I'm always grateful for our friends and colleagues that if they have a question about what they've seen in the video, that they extend the courtesy of a private dialogue with either a person that was tagged and or ideally the person who posted the video, like it's, it's them with their animal. Or if it's a, like if it's you and I, and we're posting a video that our, that our client team approved, if we see something and we're like, you know, I'm really appreciative of, of the work that, that so-and-so puts out there. Um, but I do have a question about this. And extending that private, like, hey, you know, he's and I, I have a question about the video that you posted with your client doing this. And you had mentioned that. Would you be willing to answer a question or two just to help me better understand the context of it? And I'm so appreciative of those that do that. What's hard to watch are the proclamation posts. Yeah, it's the public shaming. 100%. 100%. Oh, I'm just going to call them proclamation posts where there are proclamation posts about they might feature a blip of it or they're in they're they're making reference to something that was posted and why and why they would never in quotes they would never do it that way and their way is you know is much more progressive and their program is much more progressive and it becomes a proclamation post of shaming without making maybe a step before that to reach out privately to say, I have further questions and supporting each other on the journey that it takes to achieve whatever the milestone is. It doesn't have to be 
you know, um, a less stressful injection or a less stressful blood draw. It could be loose leash activity or, you know, some fun trick training. That's where sometimes I just feel myself getting a bit more quieter because I'm like, oh no, you know, this video has so much good in it. So why don't we parse out any questions that you might have? Or if I see these proclamation posts about, you know, well, you know, this wasn't good and, you know, this is what I do and this is what's better. And I'm always thinking in the back of my mind, Heeson, like, I wonder if that person extended a private email or a private message via social media to the very thing that they're critiquing to learn more first. It's hard. You know, no, I'm glad you I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it, it is a huge challenge for all of us professionals to even have the courage to put anything out there, you know, and I'm glad you addressed that issue. It's something I think anyone who's listening can really learn. You know, we can all learn from this and learn how to better support each other because our community, we need to support each other. It's not meant to be bullying, but, you know, being unkind in, in certain ways is overall, it's not going to achieve the goals that we're all trying to achieve. I'm so glad you brought that to light. You, you just said something that holds so much value. And before I highlight it, I do want to say, I don't think I have the answers to anything. I don't think I have an answer to what I had just summed up. It is something, again, that I'm always working on, where it's coming from the background that I did, which was always information seeking, you know, learning from my early mentors. You know, if you're not sure about what you observed, ask. You know, or Ken, Ken called it being a polite pest. If you're not sure about what you observed in a session, you know, with, with a colleague, did you talk with them one-on-one -on -one first to get clarity? I guess I just circle back to that platform where like, you know, I know, you know, social media platform only allows for X amount of time or, you know, or whatever was chosen to be featured. But then you just mentioned something that's so valuable. That is this, this is a journey and to achieve, that was the word you used to get to these goals that we want to achieve, achievement is a needle that's moving all the time. Like we achieve this today, doesn't mean we're going to achieve the same approximation tomorrow when we change criteria, when we increase distractions, when, you know, when we now have a vet tech involved or, you know, when we're walking on the street and a dog rushes up to their fence line on their property and barks at me and my dog, leaning into us not knowing what someone else has gone through in their journey to get to that moment of achievement yeah. and trying not to cut them off at the knees for it by using it as a platform to make someone else look better. It's, you know, it's, it's yeah. not a good look. I agree because at the heart of what we all do, I do believe I may be idealistic, but I do believe that one of the, overall common goals that we all have as animal advocates is for humane treatment of animals and betterment of the animals that we work with. It's contradictory to have that goal, but then treat one another inhumanely. So I totally agree with what you're saying, like a hundred, a hundred percent. You summed it up with spot on. Part of that compassion is on the human end, 
of the animal human relationship as well. Yeah, awesome. that was so much. Thank you. Um, before we we end part one, and I hope you're open to doing a part two. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, I would love to have you on for part two. I'm so sad because we ran out of time for part one. But when you come back for part two, I'm so excited to delve into like the next phase and also talk about your work with domestic animals, especially dogs. what your specialty is with working with everyday people and so but in closing do you have advice for people out there young people or anyone who wants to get involved with conservation work or uh, marine mammals or you know zoology you know work in zoos like what would be your advice for them to get started follow your passion it's it's a competitive field like many fields in this world can be keep at it. You know, I would mentioned earlier in our podcast today, that feeling of, you know, when I was 19, 20, heading into 21, where I'm like, I'm never going to get the break. Like I am doing everything I can to get the yes. And I keep hearing no, like, what else do I have to do? And it was just being persistent, you know, not being mean to others that were trying to achieve the same goal you know, um, helping support other individuals around you and looking for excellent mentors that if you hear a no on your resume application, you know, or after you interview, when we hear a no, and this is something that I would always keep in mind when when I was interviewing, when I worked in the zoo and aquarium field, is a person's reaction to me when they heard they didn't get the job. If your reaction is one of, I'm bummed, I'm so sorry I didn't get the job. Um, Are there any recommendations that you would have that could help me improve my resume to kind of push me for the next consideration on the next round of hiring? So it's how we handle the no that folks are watching. And if it's one of, you know, thank you for this opportunity. I'm really excited that 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 I at least got to interview. Do you have any tips for me? And if so, you know, what are they? Or could I send a follow-up email just to find out what other areas I can work on to improve my application as a candidate to get hired? Just stick with your dream, follow it, you know, as, as much as you can. You know, no one wants to go broke being like, I, you know, I have no more income and I'm still trying to get this. But even like, um, you know, if you... If you want to work with wildlife rescue, watch their website, watch their volunteer department and just get on their grounds, you know, work, work in their volunteer program, work in their education program, because then you're on site. And when they do have a job opening, you might hear it long before they post it um, on their, on their website or long before they might post it on the AZA website, the American Zoological Association website. And so you have like front row privy knowledge to be like, oh, I just heard a job openings have, you know, just came up and then you could mobilize on site, you know, here's my recent resume or what is the application process to submit plus getting your foot in the door. Folks are watching your work ethic. Folks are meeting you. You might not be in the department you want yet or in the area that your goal is, but you might be in this department. And they're still watching how you interact with your colleagues, your work ethic. And yeah. So much. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's not cheesy at all. It's 
work to get the yes. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Be persistent. I mean, I couldn't have asked for better advice. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for your time being on the show. I'm so excited for you to come back and yeah, there's so just so much. I feel like we could just talk for hours about. We could, we could but I have to, I, I have to take care of Vito and Santino and hopefully your podcast listeners, you know, find something of value, you know, maybe some nuggets that you and I talked out and, and, you know, sorry if I was passion talking, I was just like, I have so much to say. So. Oh yeah. I, we, the audience is, I think going to, draw so much value from this interview and I'll put your uh, information in the show notes for them. So they know how to get in contact with you. And thank you so much, Laura, for being on the show. Anytime. I'll see you at part part two. Okay. Thanks everyone. Bye. Bye everyone.